We are in Matthew chapter 12, and we're at a very, very difficult, complicated, complex passage. Which means some of you are going to internally groan. You respect me too much to not do it externally, but you're going to groan, which means you have to think. You're going to have to really think. My job today is try my very best in the power that God gives me to make this clear. Your job is to going to be able to say, all right, well, that's what it's saying. Let me grab it. Let me grasp it. Let me apply it to my own life. You've probably heard athletes, celebrities, politicians get caught up saying something offensive or immoral and then they defend themselves by saying that's not who they really are. I'll give you an example. Jonah Hill, he's a, an actor, spoke a slur against homosexuals and he got caught and, and he erupted a social media frenzy against them. So he finally got on and he said this. I'm going to quote his words. This is a heartbreaking situation for me. In that moment, I said a disgusting word that does not at all reflect how I feel about any group of people. Is that really true? How about when you and I say things that we later regret and our excuse is that we didn't mean it? Is that really true? The answer to those two questions is going to be seen in our passage today. So if you haven't done it yet, get your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 12. We all need to get them open. We need to look at what Jesus says to us in this passage. I got to give you some context. This is where you have to think a little bit, but I'm going to make it really easy. We're going to follow it along in the Bible, okay? So open up chapter 12. Here we go. Look at verse 1. There's a conflict brewing. And it's between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, if you don't know this, are basically pastors to the Jewish people. Okay? Now, I'm watching. This is, by the way, if you're up here preaching, you could do the same thing to me. I'm watching people looking all around the sanctuary. It is so hard, isn't it, to hold our minds attentive? So I'm going to keep trying to get your minds to hold on to this. There's a conflict brewing it's between Jesus and the Pharisees. Look at verse 1. Jesus and his disciples are walking along a road. It's the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And they're hungry. So they take on the outer edge of the fields some tassels of grain. And they put them between their palms and they rub them like this. And it separates the grain kernel from the chaff. And you blow the chaff away and you eat the kernel. That's what they're doing. And this is all allowed by the Jewish law. They command farmers, don't harvest the edges of your field. That's for the widow. That's for the orphan. That's for the stranger, the immigrant. They're doing what the law, the law allows. But that's not how the Pharisees see it. Because it's the Sabbath. And to the Pharisees, that's work. And on the Sabbath, the law says you must do no work. So things are escalating. And it, goes, it gets even worse. Look at verse 10. It's the same day. Now Jesus and his disciples, they go into a synagogue. And there in the synagogue was a crippled man. And the Pharisees think, we've got an opportunity 
we can trap him. We don't like Jesus, so we're going to trap him. And they do, and they ask him if it's lawful, if it's according to God's law to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus, as you can see, gives his answer. And then he acts on his answer. He heals the man. But this so infuriated the Pharisees, look at verse 14. They leave the synagogue, they go out, and they conspired. They made plans against Jesus how to destroy him. That means how to kill him dead. They want him dead. And now it boils over in verse 22. Now it's not the synagogue anymore. It's not even the Sabbath anymore. But a demon-oppressed man comes. His friends bring him to Jesus. And he's oppressed by demons. He's blind. He's made mute. By the way, I don't think anything changed first century to 21st century. I still think demons manifest themselves physically at times. I don't think it's always the immediate solution to go to your doctor or your therapist for everything. I think sometimes you might want to go to God first and the people of God, but this demonic oppression made him mute and made him blind, and they brought him to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. And the Pharisees are right there. And all the people, verse 23, they are amazed. It means that word, they are thunderstruck. They are shocked out of their minds. And they say, can this be the son of David? In other words, is this the long-awaited Messiah? Is this the Savior that we've been hoping for? Now, the Pharisees are listening to the crowd. They are terrified. They are losing control of the people people are listening to jesus more than pharisees by the way pastors can do the same thing today when people like somebody else's teaching more than theirs they can get out of control they can get terrified they can get full of anxiety well that's what was happening and the pharisees are telling the people that jesus cast that demon out by the power of beelzebul that's a slaying term for satan it actually is a word that means lord of the flies you might have read that book scariest most horrific book i've ever read as a kid so they're making an accusation that jesus has the power of satan and jesus demolishes their accusation in four simple steps look at the brilliance of jesus in verse 25 he just simply says why would satan divide his own kingdom by casting out his own demons a house divided against itself will not stand that was a common saying in that day it just didn't even make sense what they were saying so he first comes at it rationally and now he comes at it personally. Look at verse 27. By the way, your disciples, Pharisees, they're casting out demons too. Does that mean that your own disciples have satanic power? Now he comes at it experientially, verse 28. Since the obvious answer to the first two questions is no, the only rationale is that I am doing these things by the Spirit of God's power, which is proof that the kingdom of God has come. And number four, I'm the king of the kingdom. So you're either with me, verse 30, or you're against me. You're either gathering or you're scattering. And by the way, look at the Pharisees. They haven't been able to respond to any of this this argument is so solid 
they're struck speechless. That's the power of Jesus. But he's not done. Look at verse 31. He gives a terrifying warning to the Pharisees, and everybody's hearing him say it, that God will forgive sin. He'll even forgive blasphemy, which is sharp, sharp slander, even if it is against Jesus. So blasphemy is slandering God, and God will forgive it if it's against Jesus. Don't you remember Jesus hanging on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. So God will forgive blasphemy against Jesus, but he goes on, not if it's against the Spirit. Now, I've had people in my ministry career who are convinced that they may have committed this sin, blaspheming the Spirit. They are terrified. They are absolutely convinced that they're going to be in hell. And I'm going to tell you that if you are ever worried about committing a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin, that's your proof that you've never done it. This blasphemy is committed by one who sees clear evidence of the Spirit's power and then attributes it to the work of Satan. That person, verse 32, will not be forgiven either in this age or in eternity, the age to come. Now, you might be a little confused, so I'm going to explain it through what one writer said in his commentary. He said, blasphemy against the Spirit is the sober, clear-minded, deliberate rejection of Jesus as a very agent of evil despite full knowledge of his work and in face of the Spirit's full testimony to him. So here's what it is. It's when you see something and there is evidence that it is true and the Spirit of God has borne out evidence that it's true and you still attribute it to the work of Satan. This blasphemer has heard the gospel proclaimed with clarity with power, yet he hates Jesus and Christianity and views it as wickedness and deceit. He hears, he understands, and he despises. That's what blasphemy of the Spirit is. The one who blasphemes the Spirit of God has passed the point of no return. They are fully self-deceived. They are committed to oppose Christ, and they will influence anyone they can. He's still not done. Because what follows is now the grace of Jesus even to the Pharisees. He's going to admonish them. Parents, we know this word even if we don't use it. It means to correct. It means to confront your child. Why? Because you see where their path is going. And you know where their path is going to end. So you interrupt the trajectory of their behavior to rescue them. That's what admonishing is. That's what Jesus is about to do, and he does it in verse 33. He's speaking about and to the Pharisees. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Just an agricultural saying it wasn't unique to jesus it's just a truism but that word make now look at your bibles again in verse 33 that word make in both the greek language and the english language could be used in both a or in either a literal sense where i am going home after church and making a meal 
or figuratively, like, make up your mind, do you want to marry me or not? It's either used one way or the other. And Jesus uses it in the latter sense. Pharisees, make up your mind about me. Look at my works and decide, because verse 30 is true. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. A tree is always known by its fruit. You can't get good fruit from a diseased tree. You can't get bad fruit from a good tree. You don't get apples from a pear tree. In other words, our words, and now we bring it to heart talk. Our words, even our actions, reveal the condition of our hearts. And it was doing just this for the Pharisees. Look what Jesus says. This is harsh, but this is firm admonishment. He says, you are a brood of vipers. You are children of serpents. How can you speak good when you are evil? He's telling them, your tree is bad. Your tree is evil. Yes, you're wearing long robes and you've got tassels on the bottom of them. And people look at you as being godly and righteous and holy. But the evidence is coming out of your mouth. You're speaking against me. You're blaspheming the spirit. It's showing you the condition of your tree. And it is evil. A brood of vipers ought to be taking your mind back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said to the serpent, to Satan, I will put conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. That's plural. That means the people of the world and the people of the church, the people of God. There will be conflict. So Christian, don't be surprised if the world despises you, if they ridicule you for your faith. That conflict is there, and it's been there for all of human history. But then there's a singular. One of the offspring from Eve is the Messiah. He shall crush. That's what the word bruise means. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's crucifixion. This is about Jesus. Have you ever loved someone who was sick? And would not go to the doctor, would not get looked at. And you plead with that person, perhaps even scare them, even threaten to call the doctor yourself, but they just won't go. That's what's happening. This is what Jesus is doing with the Pharisees. Their hearts are hardened. He's the great physician. They will not come to him, and their words will damn their souls. But he is graciously warning that they are giving evidence that they are the offspring of the devil. And here's the evidence, and here's where we all come in. Now he's speaking to everybody. Jesus speaks to everybody in that crowd in verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now we're all in the story. The Greek word abundance actually means superabundance. It's a superlative. It's as if pressure is building up in our hearts and it demands release. And the mouth is the valve and you turn the faucet when you talk. And what's in the heart gushes out in our words. There was a very interesting study in 2007 led by a Dr. Matthias Mell. And what they were trying to do is figure out, is it really true that women speak more than men? 
They had 389 or 396 people that they did this experiment on, 210 of them women, 186 men. What do you think the finding was? Do women speak more than men? Oh, man, you got some heads going up. Those are all men, and you got some heads going this way. Those are all women. Here's the reality. The findings were this. Women speak per day an average of 16,215 words. Men speak on average 15,669. Really not a big difference. Not much of a difference, and for either gender, that is a lot of words. We can see this abundance of the heart. You could go to Job and go to chapter 32. You remember the story probably. Job suffers like probably nobody has ever suffered since. And he has four friends. Three of them dominate the book of Job up to chapter 31. And they just keep railing on Job, keep trying to tell Job, you've obviously sinned, and this is obviously God's judgment against you. And Job keeps defending himself. But there's a fourth friend. He's the youngest of them all. His name is Elihu. And until chapter 32, he hasn't uttered a peep. But now look at the screen. You ready? He speaks, should I continue to wait now that you are silent? Must I also remain silent? No, I will save my peace. I will speak my mind for I am so full of pent up words and, my, and, and the spirit within me urges me on. I'm like a cask of wine without a vent, like a new wineskin ready to burst. I must speak to find relief. So let me give my answers. That's what it means to have an abundance of the heart. You've got to speak or you're going to burst. I bet you've had a time when you were chomping at the bit to say something. You were impatiently waiting for the other person to stop talking. And maybe even if you weren't very patient, you interrupted. You're, you're trying to get a word in edgewise. That just means you can't fit all your words in. There's no room. So you turn them narrow side on and see if you can fit them in that way. And you're trying to even aim for a person's intake of breath. You just can't get a word edgewise. When we communicate, now listen very carefully to this phrase, both verbally and in writing, we have opened the faucet and our hearts begin to gush out. But what on earth is the heart? If you've grown up Disney, if you've got pop culture songs in your minds, then basically you've reduced the heart to your emotions. The Bible is much more robust. It will not let you bring it to only emotions. The heart is your inner being. It is the central you. It is made up of three things, your mind, your feelings, and your will. That's what the, that's what the heart is biblically. That means we think in our hearts. We reason in our hearts. We ponder. Mary, after the shepherds came and they said all the words that they did, Mary pondered them in her heart. We feel compassion. The heart of Jesus was moved towards the leper. We feel empathy. We could feel anger in our hearts. We make our choices. We act on our dreams. We're motivated, we have expectations, and we act on them from our hearts. See, the heart is critical. 
And it's priceless, which is why Solomon cautions us, keep your heart with all vigilance, guard it with everything you've got, for from it flow the springs of life. Now, I'm going to catch you up with what I've just said. Every word we speak is coming from our heart. That's the origin story of our, of our words. And they build up. And sometimes there's an abundance in our hearts, and it builds a pressure. And when we speak, it's like opening a faucet, and the water comes gushing out. When we speak, it's the heart gushing out from down in our inner being where we think and we feel and we act. And it's so important to evaluate our hearts through our words that the Bible says you better keep it vigilant because everything comes from it. And now Jesus is going to corroborate that. Look at verse 35. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. That word treasure is a metaphor for the heart. And the evil person out of his evil treasure, evil heart, brings forth evil. So every human being, including everybody here and including me, has either a good heart or a bad heart. You've got a good treasure or you've got an evil treasure. And the Bible says we're all born to be wild. We are sinners and we come into this world with an evil treasure of a heart. You can, know, you can go all the way back to Genesis and find this in chapter 8. Where God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Well, you might say, well, yeah, of course, every teenager is evil, but before that, these are just absolutely wonderful children. And that we love them so much, it's hard to see the reality of what David said in Psalm 51, for I was born a sinner. He even goes earlier, from the moment my mother conceived me, even in her womb, I had a heart that was already ready to defy God that loved me more than anybody else. We're all born with that. Even that precious little baby that brings you to tears is a sinner who will love self more than you, the parent. And the only way, now listen, I want you to understand something. The only way for you to gain a good heart is to receive it through a transplant. And this is exactly what Ezekiel 36 says. I, God says, will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's a new heart. And how do you gain that heart? You come to the great physician. His name is Jesus. And he died on the cross for all who would trust in him. And the moment that you put your faith in him exclusively, he takes your old heart out. He puts a new heart in. He recreates you. He gives you a new self. And he powers it with the spirit of God that comes in your heart to dwell. Now, if you're thinking, remember I told you this message, you're going to have to think a little bit. You might be wondering, well, wait a minute. I know people that aren't Christians that do a lot of good things. 
Don't non-believers give generously to those in need sometimes? Don't they lay down their lives as police officers and soldiers and firemen? Aren't these good and selfless things sometimes coming from people who have unredeemed hearts? I want to teach you how you evaluate your words and how you evaluate your actions to see if they're good. There's two ways that I think you could do this. The Bible measures both words and deeds from two perspectives. One of them is simple. One of them is objective. One of them is the law of God, the word of God. It's pretty simple. I'll give you an example. One of the commandments in the Bible says, you shall not murder. Now, I'm hoping that all of us, one day when we die, we we will be able to say with a clear conscience, I never physically murdered anybody. That would be a wonderful goal, especially when you're upset at your pastor. That's a tough crowd. (laughs) So that's one way to measure your actions. Did I keep the commandment? Did I live my whole life and not commit physical murder? And if you lived your whole life and didn't commit it, that's good. Except the Bible uses another measurement, and there's another perspective. In addition to the measuring rod of the law of God, which evaluates our external performance, God looks down deeper into our hearts, and he evaluates the motivations of our hearts. I'll share with you something that my daughter shared with me yesterday. She said I could share this. The Ackley family... I think collectively has a sugar sweet tooth. In fact, we have a whole lot of them in our mouths. And it's not unique or abnormal for one of us to talk somebody in the family to go to the grocery store and grab ice cream or donuts or something, usually at 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Now, we also have a friend that co-owns a bakery who just last night delivered sticky buns at 10 o'clock. That was pretty sweet. Carissa was the one to go on this particular venture. She goes to Giant, and she's standing in front of the ice cream. She's got sweets in her arm, and she's standing in front of the ice cream freezer section, and whenever somebody came by, she started to mutter under her breath, now, what else did they want us to get? What else did they want me to get? Because she felt like somebody was going to see her holding all of these sweets and think, my goodness, does that girl eat anything healthy? Now, the words that were coming out of her mouth were coming from what motivation? Every word comes from a motivation from the abundance of our hearts. They have a reason. We speak them for a purpose. So the law of God measures the external, but the holy gaze of God looks at the internal. What is your motivation? And so when you come to the commandment, do not murder, God's actually looking much, much deeper and going, have you upheld life at every moment of your day for your entire existence? In other words, have you spoken on behalf of the unborn that don't have a voice? Have you defended that student that's being bullied? 
Have you provided for that person that is starving because they don't have access to food and clean water? Have you encouraged that hopeless person who wants to commit suicide? Listen, it's not just enough in that commandment to not kill somebody. You have to do everything you can every moment of your life to uphold life. And if you're doing that every moment, every day, every week and month and year of your life, then you've just met God's standard, but you haven't and neither have I. See, there's a measuring rod that the law of God gives, and then there is the gospel that looks deeper into the heart and says, what's been your motivation? Have you sought every moment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself? Have you done that? And the Bible says no. There is only one person who has ever kept the external measuring rod of the law and the pure, holy, perfect motivation of a perfect love with no trace of selfish ambition. His name is Jesus, and he's the only one that was worthy to die on the cross. He's the only one whose death can bring life. Whatever heart a person has, whether it's good or evil, it will eventually be seen in our words. I did a funeral years ago for a lady who was dying. Um, we were there just two nights before the elders. We anointed her with oil. We prayed with her. My last glimpse of her living body was lying on the couch so weak that all she could do is lay, raise one of her arms to the Lord while we sang with tears running down her cheeks. That woman died in a way that brought glory to God. I have a friend who had to get back surgery. And I went to visit her in the hospital, and the entire conversation was, how am I doing? How is Denise doing? How are our children doing? She was so selfless that when a nurse came in, whether she was able to get them there in five minutes or an hour, she continued to pour out kindness. Some hearts, when you squeeze them, come, coming out of it is beauty. Other hearts, when you squeeze them, coming out of it is evil. Which heart do you have? One person suffers and you hear complaints and anger and bitterness. Another suffers as well and you hear painful honesty, but kindness and the affirmation of God's love. What made the difference? What, what made the difference between those two kinds of words and actions? It was the heart and it's bubbling up in words and it's bubbling up in deeds. Friends, it is important for us to understand that we've got to start paying attention to our words because look what Jesus says in verse 36. Can you look at your Bibles with me? I tell you, he's speaking to all of us, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. What are careless words? That literally, the word careless in the Greek means unemployed. These are words that are unproductive. They do not work. They are barren. They are worthless. And they come out like this in the forms of broken promises, empty flattery, 
words that we do not mean, words that we don't even think about because we don't assign a value to it. Are they helpful words or are they destructive words? You don't even care, you don't even assign a value to it. It's when we say, I'll pray for you and we never do. Or we ask somebody, how are you doing? And you really don't care. And we have a lot of careless words that come out of our mouths, and I'm going to convince you of that, I think, extremely clearly. I told you a few minutes ago that the average person, men or woman, man or woman, speaks around 16,000 words a day. Let's just do the math. That's 5,840,000 words a year. Right now in the U.S., the average lifespan is just a notch over 78 years. Let's just deduct the first 10. Maybe it takes us a while to really get talking to our full potential. So in 68 years, at 5,840,000 words a year, that's a total of 397,120,000 words that you're going to speak in your lifetime. A 200-page book, by the way, contains about 55,000 words. That means that each of us are going to speak enough in our 68 years of life to fill 7,220 full-length books. That's a lot of words. You ever looked at it that way? How many of those words did you actually examine before they left your mouth. Because if even careless words can condemn a person before Christ, you might be asking then who could be saved? And J.C. Ryle, the theologian, says this, if there were no other text in the Bible, this passage ought to convince us that we are all guilty before God and we need a righteousness better than our own, even the righteousness of Christ, because not one of us are worthy to be saved. Because even if one careless word, which is much less than gossip and slander and lying and falsehood, if even a careless word comes out of your mouth, it has damned your your soul to hell. Not one of us can save ourselves. It must be Jesus. This is the point that Jesus is making. You have failed even on a level of a careless word, much less blaspheming me and the Holy Spirit. Because a heart speaks out of its abundance. And a treasure, our heart, is either evil or it's good. It will be good only if Jesus gives you a new heart. And what he means here is what James meant. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Our words, Christian, ought to give evidence that we've got a new heart. And when we fail... We need to learn to respond in humility and confess and repent. One of the things that we have taught our children from when they were little, little kids is that there is a massive difference between saying I'm sorry and asking for forgiveness. Parents, I hope you teach your children this. And I'll give you an example. If I've got a cup of hot coffee in my hand and I come up to say hello to you and I trip and that coffee pours out on your pants or your shirt, I'm going to say I'm sorry. I apologize. 
I didn't mean to do that. Apologies are for accidents, inadvertent behavior. But if I get angry at you and I take that cup of coffee and I throw it on you out of my anger, an apology isn't going to be enough. That put Jesus on the cross. He had to die for that. That's called sin. And the only thing appropriate for me to say to you is, will you please forgive me? There's a massive difference between an apology and a pleading for forgiveness. Teach it to your children, but know that it's the same for God. When a Christian speaks, we need to be examining our words because the heart is gushing them out. And if they are not words that are bringing grace to those who hear, if they are not building others up according to the need of the moment, if they are tearing people down, we've got to stop the words. If they get out, you confess and you repent and you plead for the grace of God to give you better hearts so you can speak better words. I will tell you personally that I have never, ever in my life been more attentive to my own heart talk than in the midst of this series. I hope you are learning to do the same. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Amen?